Uh, I want to start by talking about the importance of communication and com communicating well. Uh, communication is just so important for life, isn't it? And relationships, so important to get it right. Uh, you know, when you're listening well and speaking well, communicating, you can get stacks of stuff done, you can get to know one another, um, you can grow in trust with others, you can understand one another, flourish together. But when communication fails, when you're not communicating well, either not listening or not speaking well, you end up in a world of misunderstanding, in a world of hurt, in a world of crossed lines and frustration and distance. So have you ever got communication just completely wrong? I want to give you an illustration. I want to give you an example of, of communication going completely wrong. And I've got permission from my son Matt to share this with you. I asked him yesterday. Um, the night before the English exam, my son was having a conversation with uh, his mum, my wife Karina, about a poem that was one of his prescribed texts. Now, we thought this poem was all about a box of bees that a poet had delivered to her because the poem was called The Arrival of the Bee Box. And so it was just a natural conclusion to make, and that's how he understood the poem. But as he was chatting with Corinna about the poem, she just started to get a little bit concerned about, about Matt's understanding of the poem and decided to read it herself. This poem was not about a box of bees that was delivered in the post to the poet. The box of bees was actually an analogy of her mind buzzing with all sorts of crazy thoughts. And so he just got it completely wrong. It was good to have that conversation the day before the exam, not the day after the exam. Uh, that was a very helpful thing for Matt, and he got a better mark than he might have. Matt was reading everything wrong, wasn't he? He wasn't making any serious or real connection with the poem and what the, what the poet wanted to explain and unpack and describe in this poetry that she'd written. He was asking all the wrong questions and getting all the wrong answers. He was listening, yes, but he certainly wasn't understanding and making no real meaningful connection with what the author was trying to convey. So communication is important, isn't it? Listening and understanding well. It's important to get it right, otherwise we miss what's actually happening and what's being said. I want to suggest that the same thing happens as what happened with Matt with the poem with Genesis 1 again and again and again in our current context. With the evolutionary controversy that's been raging over hundreds of years, so many people come to Genesis 1 with all the wrong questions and they actually miss the main points of what's going on in this chapter and the big questions that are being asked. So was Genesis 1 written by God to provide an answer to Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species? Obviously not. But quite often that's how we read it. We come to Genesis 1 with questions in our mind like this. You know, how exactly did God create the universe? Was it in six 24-hour periods? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? You know, really important questions like that. And we want to find answers to them. But it doesn't give the answers to that. And if we're looking for those, we're actually missing the point of what's happening and what God is saying to us in this chapter. What are the questions we need to come with to this chapter? I think there's three really key questions we need to come with. One is, what, is, what do we learn about God? Second is, what do we learn about our world? Thirdly, what do we learn about humanity? What do we learn about us? And I've got to say that in these 34 short verses, we're only going to scratch the surface today of what we can uncover 
about those three questions, in answer to those three questions. So let's begin listening to God in this part of his word, this profound part of his word. First question, what do we learn about God from Genesis chapter 1? This chapter is the opening scene of the unfolding narrative that's going to un- unravel, well not unravel, but sort of just continue over the next 66 books. And in this opening chapter, in this, in fact, opening verse of this great narrative about God and his dealings with us, we meet the main character. In the beginning, God. And as we read through the next 66 books, we're going to get get to know this God in all his powerful and wonderful truth of who he is, what a great God he is. But even in this opening chapter, we get so much. Let's have a look. Let me, let me just unpack some of the facets of this, this God that we meet, that we're introduced to in chapter 1. God is powerful. You see that so clearly in chapter 1, don't you? He is so powerful. He creates everything out of nothing. What else do we learn about God? He loves bringing about order and structure. He's a God of order and purpose in this chapter, so clearly. This world is not a chaotic and meaningless mess. Everything was created with order and purpose, created after their kind, and kind produces kind after their kind. That order that we see in in this creation that we see in Genesis 1 reflects a God that is a God of order too and brings about order out of chaos. What else do we learn about this God? God is clever. God is wise. God is creative. What what he makes is beautiful and self-sustaining and profoundly complex, but at the same time profoundly simple and wonderful. I mean, when I just consider my hand, when you just consider your hand and all the things it can do, it's just stunning when you think about that. And that's just our hand, let alone our whole bodies, let alone all that God has made. He's profoundly wise and profoundly clever. What else do we learn? God is a generous and an abundant provider and life giver. I mean, as, as you read through chapter 1, it just the whole chapter bubbles with life, doesn't it? Just life just almost bubbling out of the ground. It's just, he's a life giver. Life that gives birth to life and grows life. And he's just so, he's just so varied. It's just so wonderful what he does. My understanding is that, that an avocado contains everything we need to be healthy. All the vitamins we need, all the things we need. We could live off avocados. So, so God could have just made avocado trees and we would have been provided for. Might have been bored, but we would have been provided for, okay? But he didn't. What does he do? He makes vanilla pots. He makes coffee beans, cocoa beans. He makes peanuts. And he makes eggplant. I don't know why he made eggplant. I'm sure people like eggplant, but that's part of the thing. You know, there's so much variety. God just, God provides and God gives and just, he's, he's a bountiful, giving, generous God. That's the God we meet in Genesis 1, but we're not finished. What we meet is God is one, but he's also plural. There is one God who created all things, but within this one God, in this one God, there's a plurality, there's, there's an us. And as we read through the rest of the scriptures, we see there is three in one. Verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image. 
So God is one but three. But even within that, we also see that God is a God of relationship. Within himself, God, there's relationship within God. He loves relationship, and you can see that in what he does, in how he makes us to be in relationship with him. And there's so much I could say about that, but that's another sermon. Let's keep going. What else we learn about God? Verse 1, we see that God is separate. God is holy. God is eternal. He's not caught up in the creation. He's not part of the creation. He's separate from it. He's holy. In the beginning, God, separate from creation, holy and blameless. But at the same time, yes, God is holy and separate and other, but at the same time, he's intimately involved in the creation that he makes. He loves, he loves it, he cares for it, he provides for us, he speaks to us. He profoundly cares for those who are made in his image in particular and relates with those that he has made. What else have we learned? God is a sustainer. We learn that God is good. We also see another thing. God speaks. God is a God of words, which is, which is connected to the fact that he's a God of relationship. It's not, it's not an accident that God creates by speaking. It actually says something about who he is. God is a God of words, who relates, who reveals in what he says, who longs for people to know him and reveals himself to us, that we might love him, and understand him and respond to his love for us. And we come to know him in what he says. So much in this chapter, really, when you think about it, there's so much in this chapter about the God that we meet as he lands on the stage for us, if you want to put it like that. Have a look at this passage, Psalm 19, as God is praised for his work of creation. We've read one psalm, let's read another one. we heard one psalm, let's have a look at this one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his work, the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them yet. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Creation praises the living God, the wonder of the God who made it. In creation, we see the wonder, the power, the glory, the generosity, the authority of God. The whole world is created to give him glory. Something that this passage from Revelation expresses so clearly as well. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Creation was made to the praise and glory of God, and that includes us. And we'll come back to that soon. So let's go to the second question. What does Genesis 1 teach us about the world in which we live, the universe that he made? So many things. First thing is our world is created by God. That is, there's, there's a time where it was not. It's not eternal. It hasn't always been there. Our world also is ordered. We've already seen that as we talked about God. It's predictable. Kind giving birth to kind, one kind of plant bearing seed of its own kind. Our world is beautiful. It's majestical. The creation reflects in some ways the creator who made it. The creation is powerful. It's life-giving. It's ordered. It's wonderful, intricate, yet awe-inspiring in much the same way that God is. But it's separate from him. But there's one thing I want to focus on 
that we learn about our world from this chapter that keeps on coming up again and again in quite a number of verses through chapter 1, and that is that the creation is good. You notice that it just keeps coming up, verse 10, as an example, that God saw the sea that he had made and he saw that it was good. What does it mean that it was good? Is it just saying that it's not bad? Is he just saying, oh, it looked nice? Now, the sea does look nice. It, it isn't bad, but that's not all what that word really means. What it really means is God didn't make a mistake. It's fit for purpose. What he meant it for, he created it for, it works as he meant it to. He didn't look at the world and say, oh, whoops, that two-toed sloth, that's a bit weird. No, well, let's keep going. All done. No, no, it's not like that. Now, I'm no good at art, all right? If you looked at any art, I'd have to pity you, okay? It's really, really bad. And what, what I, any art that I do, it looks nothing like what I have in my head, all right? God's not like that. When he set out to make something, it fit exactly what he made it for. There's no mistakes in that. It's good. Every element of it achieves the purpose that he intended it for. So that brings us to question three. What does Genesis 1 teach us about you and me? Who are we? Well, the first thing we see is that we are created. Now, there's a lot in that. So let's unpack that a bit. We are creatures. We were created by and therefore accountable to God. And in our fallen, sinful state, we fail to appreciate just how wonderful that truth really is, that we were created by and accountable to God. Recognising that we are accountable creatures who live under God's authority is true and wonderful freedom. But in our sinful state, we think of it as bondage. But it's not. It's true freedom to know who we are who we were made to be, who we truly are. Like a fish in water, we need to know where we find true freedom. We need to know who we are, the bounds of our freedom by recognising who we are. To think of freedom as self-autonomy, as self-rule, no accountability to God, the God who made us, is like a fish thinking that freedom lies outside the water. No, that's not freedom, that's death. True freedom is knowing who you are, a creature accountable to God. That's a wonderful truth. We also see how significant we are in this created order that God has made. Notice how this epic account of creation of the whole of the universe ends in verse 31. Up until this point, we've seen again and again, nearly, nearly every day it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Then verse 31, after creating man and woman, he says, now this is very good. This is very good. There we see that we are the pinnacle of this creation that God has made. But of course, the one thing that really sets humanity apart from the rest of God's literally awesome creation is found in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's not our capacity for complex thought that sets us apart. It's not our capacity for complex relationships that sets us apart. From the rest of creation, no, it's the fact that we are created in God's image. That's what gives us our place in God's created order as the pinnacle of it. That's what makes us different to the rest of the creation. 
So what does it mean that we're created in God's image? Well, we're fashioned, we're created after God himself. And that's a massive privilege when you think about it. We are God's image bearers in this world that God has made. It's as if you should be able to look from the outside and if you look at humanity, you see the stamp of the creator. We have the image of the creator in us in a profound way. That's a huge responsibility and a wonderful privilege, isn't it, when you think about that? And there are many ways that we are like him that reflect what we learn of God in this chapter. Like God, we are creative. Like God, we are powerful. But we're also meant to be like him in ways that we see him revealed in this chapter. So God is generous and we are called to be generous. We need to be like him like that. God is life-giving, so should we. God is life-preserving, so should we. So we need to be like him in those ways. But the passage itself brings out two particular ways that we were created in the image of God that this passage highlights, and you can see it in the passage. And those two things are rule and relationship to us. So in verse 26, right after God says he will create us in his image, he says, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We are like God in that we rule. We rule under him. We've been given stewardship and responsibility in this world that God has made. We've been given profound responsibility for something that God cares deeply for, this world. We rule this world under him. And so we are to rule in the same way that he rules, in much the same way as he rules. And how does he rule? Well, we see in this passage he cares for and gives life to and rules for the good of those he rules. That's how he rules Adam and Eve, isn't it? It's loving, it's generous, it's giving and for our good. And so should we. Our rules should be the same. Then in the next verse, we see the second aspect that this passage highlights about what it means for us to be created as image bearers of God. Like God, we are relational. It's not an accident that it's in this context that the plural for God comes out. Let us make man in our image. And so uh, in that verse, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is relational in and of himself. As three people in one. Within himself there's plurality, there's trinity. As God is deeply relational in the way that he relates to us and cares for us and provides for us and walks with Adam and Eve, so we are relational, created for relationship, made for relationship with God, made for relationship one with another. So we're not a rock. We're not an island. Despite what Simon and Garfunkel might say, that illustration might be old for you, but it's a great song. But it's wrong. We are not a rock. We are not an island. We were created for a relationship. And like our image-bearing nature of ruling, where we need to rule like God does, well, it's the same thing with our relationship. We need to relate in the way that God... We were created to relate in the way that God relates to us and the way that he relates within himself. How's that? Other person-centeredly. We see his other person-centeredness in the way that he relates with us, in the way he gives for us and cares for us and provides for us. And that's how we need to relate to other person centrally. That's how we were made. That's how relationships work. And that continues to unpack through the rest of the Bible. This other person-centered God. He laid down his life for us, ultimately. That's the pattern for us, too. That's how relationships work. That's how we were made. 
So we see those two things, that two aspects of being made in God's image. What else we learn about humanity? We also see that God created us with purpose. This is a huge thing. Let's spend a bit of time there. He says, verse 28, he gives us purpose. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The purpose we see in this verse is more than just having babies and farming, all right? Much more than that. There's much more going on. The essence of what it means to rule this world under God, what are we doing? We are his representatives. We are to carry out his purposes in this world and fulfil his purposes in this world, and his work in this world, and he, he uses us in that. Think about the end of chapter 2. It's a wonderful world, but it's incomplete. Okay? It's incomplete. God made this world to be filled with people in right relationship with one another, in wonderful right relationship with God, and it's incomplete. And so our role as his image bearers in this world is to complete and fulfil his work in this world. That's what he's doing. That's how he's using us. That's our job. It's a massive, wonderful, purposeful task, isn't it? Profound purpose given to us. Our purpose is to be a part of making this world what God made it to be. Isn't that awesome? What a great responsibility and privilege that he's given us as his image bearers. Have a look at chapter 2, those three verses that we read. The rest that occurs at the end of six days of creation. It's a, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the world as it was created to be. All the world fitting the purpose that God made it for. It's not all it was meant to become, that's still yet to come, but every ingredient is in its right and wonderful place. God is at rest enjoying together with his image bearers, Adam and Eve, this wonderful joy of this new world and relationships made right, created right, with us and him, with one another, in this world of blessing. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And what we have in these verses is all that we know we were created for but don't have. All right, Because Genesis 1, and Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 is not our world, is it? We're meant to read this and think, that's what I was made for. That's what I'm not experiencing. This is not my world. This is what I deeply desire. But that's not the world I live in. We were made for this profound relief and wonder of living in a world where everything is as it was created to be, to the glory of God, and that's not our world. You know, here's a spoiler alert. Genesis 3, this rest of Genesis 2 is broken. Fractured, frustrated by sin. And ever since that chapter, we've longed to go back and we look forward to when the heavens and earth will be what it was made to be in the first place, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we were created with this profound and wonderful living purposes, image bearers of the living God. Who here has read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Wow, you guys need to read more. Maybe it's a bit past, but it's a great book. It's a really good book. Um, if you haven't read it, I'll, I'll ask you next week and see if you have read it, because you should. Um, it, it really explores with comedy this whole, what is life for? What's the, what's the big meaning of life? Okay, that's what it's really written to, to just play around with, if you want to put it like that. In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a group of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings. If you don't know what that is, you've got to read the book. 
And they decided they wanted to know the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything. And so they made this amazingly powerful computer, the most powerful computer in the universe designed to search, just to search for this answer to this question. We pick up the action seven and a half million years later, after seven and a half million years of computations and research, and we pick it up as two, these two beings, Fug and Lunquall, approach this great computer called Deep Thought. Here we go. Good. Uh, good morning, Deep Thought, said Lunquall nervously. Do, do you have, uh, that is, an answer for you? Interrupted Deep Thought. Yes, I have. There really is one, breathed Fug. There really is one. Though I don't think you're going to like it. Doesn't matter, said Fug. We must know it now. All right. You're really not going to like it. Tell us. All right. The answer to the great question. Yes? Of life, the universe, and everything is yes 42 said deep thought in, with infinite majesty and calm really like that's just a letdown isn't it if that's, if that's all it is I mean I love maths but I'm sorry that doesn't do it for me 42 just doesn't work does it it's a complete letdown. It's really, if this really is the answer to life, the universe and everything, then what's the purpose? What's, what's the meaning of life? It's just empty. There's nothing. Now we joke, and the whole book is a bit of a joke, but in essence, if this account of creation in Genesis 1 is not true, if the prevailing view that we're just a random outcome of meaningless chances and forces of evolutionary processes, if we're just a meaningless blip, on the yawning arc of time and space that began with an unexploded, unexplained, sorry, bang, and will end in obscurity and emptiness and coldness and meaninglessness, then the answer to the big life of question, the big question of life, the universe and everything might as well be 42. Because it is just meaningless. It is just empty. It is all just a waste of time. But Genesis 1 is wonderful, isn't it? Because it's such a different worldview that there's so much more to life, that there is purpose in this world. We were given purpose and given meaning and significance. A worldview that comes from the mouth of the God who made us. There is so much more reason to this life, true fulfilment to be found in relationship with our Creator and the task and the purpose He's given us as His image bearers in this wonderful world that He has made. We are created to know and serve and walk with and rule under and live for the God who made us. That's a great responsibility and a great purpose. Created to fulfill his work in a world made for community and relationship and blessing and beauty and purposeful work to be a part of making this world all it was created to be under God as co-workers with him. In Genesis 1, we met our maker. We met our generous, loving, creative, powerful, relational, life-giving God. But how do we get to know this God? Wouldn't you have loved to have walked in the garden with him like Adam and Eve? Wouldn't you have loved to have gone back? But we can't. 
Wouldn't it be great to have been loved by him and known by him like that and seen face to face? But we can't go back there. It's all been lost. And we'll see that in two weeks' time. But can we go back there? Have a look at this passage, John chapter 1. In the beginning, gee, those those words sound very familiar, don't they? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So can we go back there? Yeah, we can. In Christ. In Jesus, we meet our maker. We can know the one who made us. We might not be able to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day, but if you know Jesus... If you know Jesus in the words of Scripture, then we know our maker, our creator. We see his eternal glory in Christ. If we put our trust in Jesus, we return to intimate and eternal and wonderful and joyous relationship with him as our children, as his children. It's an idea that we also see in the other passage we read. So turn over to Colossians chapter 1 and we'll finish with this passage. This passage that speaks of Jesus, the creator God, chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him, through him and for him. So we were created in God's image, but it's Jesus who is the true image of the invisible God. Verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is truly and completely human. He is the, he is the mankind we all fail to be. But he's also our Lord, our creator, our God. All things were created by him. Jesus is the one who made us. He's the Lord of all. He's worthy of all glory and honour and power and praise. He's the one we should honour with all of our lives. And this is made crystal clear in the next phrase, verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. Jesus is the reason this universe was brought into existence and why he made it in the first place. We were created to serve him as our Lord, as our creator. So we were made for worship. Jesus made this world, he owns this world, he's our master, we're accountable to him as stewards of all that he has given us. Now for those of you here who do not yet trust in the Lord Jesus, this is a great place for you to be as you continue to seek to find answers to the questions that you've got. And the truths that we see here are such big things to appreciate. Jesus made you. Jesus made me. We are answerable to him. That, friends, is true freedom. Because that's who we are. True knowledge of who you are can only happen when we realise that we're created beings, created by Christ to honour him. We're not made to worship comfort. We're not made to worship power or money or happiness or relationships. But so often we, we trade worship of the true God for fake gods like that, which actually sell us short. Because that's not who we are. 
That's not who we're made to be. You are made to worship Christ. God in Christ. And if this is true, then you can only truly come to see the wonder of who you are and who you are made to be by bending the knee to Jesus. And you see how to do this in verses 21 and 22 of Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you haven't yet bent the knee to Jesus, accepted the way that you've rejected his place in your life as your creator, repented of your sin the way that you've treated him, and then accepted his death on your behalf, then why not do that today? And come and see the wonder of who you were created to be. Become who you were created to be, a child of the living God. It's a great privilege. Let me encourage you to continue to get your answers, questions answered. For those of us who have already bent the knee, we need to see the wonder and the privilege of serving God, the one who made us his stewards in this world, as his image bearers. Is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a steward of everything God has given you, which is everything? He made you. Everything you have is given by him. Your time is given to you by God. Your money is given to you by God. Your friendships, your family, your relationships, your work, your responsibilities, your studies, all given to you by God, the one who made you. Your life is not your own. In fact, you are twice God's if you trust Jesus, twice. He made you, he gave you a very being, and then he saved you by sending his son to die for you. So you owe him your life twice. That idea that we are stewards and God owns us and everything we have is from him changes everything. All my time belongs to God, not just the time I spend at church or reading the Bible or going to growth group. All my time is his, given to me by him. And I'm a steward of all that. All my money belongs to God, not just the bit I give away. All my life is his to be lived out as a steward of God's grace. If you let that truth shape your decisions, shape your week, shape your time, shape your relationships, everything will change. Nothing will be the same. Sometimes it will change in ways that people won't see. Sometimes it will change you in ways that will make the world think you're a nutcase. And that's okay. It's good to be a nutcase who's a steward of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? What a great nutcase to be. I'll take that. But this life, as a steward, is the life that we were created for, saved for. It's a great responsibility. It's a great purpose to be a part of God's work in this world, fulfilling his work in the world, to bring it to the rest that it was created for in Christ.